Welcome today to Nomads You and I. Today I want to talk a little bit about eternity. Let's start off with Ecclesiastes 3.11, where God says that he has set eternity in our hearts. You know, we have a divinely implanted awareness that the soul lives forever. And I think we can see this even in unbelievers who often try to keep at bay that nagging awareness that there is something more after this brief life. Ecclesiastes 12.5 calls that something more our eternal home, and it is our nature to long for it. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors that I'll be referring to a lot today, he said this about eternity, what would it be to taste at that fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating. Yet that is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. And that, of course, unquote, is God himself. Lewis goes on to say, the longings which arise in us, which we, man, Lewis continues to go on to say, Lewis goes on to say, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world and that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire of my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. So Christians have come to see God's wisdom in allowing us to feel a significant amount of discontent and dissatisfaction in life. It's his plan that these longings never be totally fulfilled on this side of eternity. Because when we never feel completely satisfied on earth, it makes us more hungry for what we were made for. And of course, that is to bask in the presence of the warmth of God's love eternally in heaven. So, despite the uninspired voices around us that are pushing trendy things like reincarnation, God says in Hebrews 9.27 that we will die once and after this comes the judgment. See, that's why Christians give it all they've got because they live in the reality that only what's done for Christ will last. And as lovely as the most pleasant blessings are in this life, believers still kindle their desire for their true country and avoid mistaking the blessings of this life for heaven. Christians live in the realization that there is no inheriting eternal life without sacrifice. Like when Jesus said in Matthew 9.29, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So the focus Christians have on the reality that their homeland is heaven shifts how we see everything, doesn't it? 
we see more clearly to what degree events are or are not consequential in the bigger picture or the grand scheme of eternity. Faith-filled Christians realize that the setbacks and the pain and the disappointments in this life will last just a little while compared to eternity. I mean, not becoming too attached to earthly experience, but seeing this life as more like the temporary assignment that it is, man, there's a lot of peace when we let that truth set us free. All the most endorphin-infused experiences here are sweet little hints of what our souls are really longing for. Lovers of God realize how foolish it would be to turn those sources of fun into dumb idols because dumb idols always, in the end, break the hearts of their worshipers. The blessings in this life, Lewis says, are only the scent of the flower we have not yet found, the echo of the tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited, unquote. And that's why you don't see genuine followers of Christ going around grabbing at everything they can to try to have it all on earth, but instead have such radically altered values from the world that a lot of decisions moment by moment are based on eternal truths and biblical virtues. So what that sounds like sometimes when a decision comes up is like, okay, so what's the honest thing to do here, even if it hurts in some way? What would be the kind thing to say at this moment? Or what really matters in this moment in light of eternity? So we Christians are just waiting for the door on which we have been knocking all of our lives to open at last when God's grace and mercy accepts us into our home. Luke 12, 36. We are waiting to be reunited with our spiritual bridegroom and his perfection from which we now on this earth feel a little bit cut off. And in the meantime, we labor in the vineyard and reap the earthly rewards of living life according to the creator's instructions. Like Jesus said in John 4:36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. In Matthew 25:46, Jesus mentions both those who will in the end go away into eternal punishment and then others he calls the righteous into eternal life. So we learn here that eternal punishment according to Jesus Christ is as sure a reality as eternal life, which begs the ultimate question, the ultimate question, how should we then live? How should we then live? It's really the same question that Jesus was asked in Luke 18, 18, when that ruler questioned him asking, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, has there ever been a more relevant question asked? John 5, 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life, unquote. We have already passed out of death and need not fear God's judgment if we hear Jesus's words and believe the father. So eternal life is for those who have been forgiven, saved, and justified, right? And contrary to what some are disposed to imagine, God has not selected just one component to save us, but rather a variety of factors to accomplish our rescue. 
Some of the factors are all the working of God and God alone. Some of the factors are up to the free will of the individual. His plan is that we participate together with him to accomplish our soul's salvation in preparation for eternity with him. So there are a number of things that God says saves us. Again, some of those things are things that are completely the working of God. Those things would include the word of God, James 1, 21, or the sacrifice of Jesus, John three seventeen, or the name of Jesus, Acts 4, 12, or his grace, Acts 15, 11, and Ephesians 5, 2, 5, and 8. So then there are the other elements that save us that God says he uses to save us that are all according to our own free will as the individual would include loving the truth. Second Thessalonians 2.10, turning back from error, James 5.20, baptism, 1 Peter 3.21 and Mark 16.16, 16. enduring to the end, Matthew 10.22, our faith, Mark 16.16, 16. calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 2.21, confessing Jesus as Lord, Romans 10.9 and 10, and 1 Timothy 2.15 mentions faith, faith, love, sanctity, and self-restraint, all of which are things that God expects us to use our free will to choose to participate. The same could be said for what God says justifies us. And of course, justify just means to declare just or right or freed. We really, we need justification to prepare for eternity. What are the things that God says he has done to justify us? Well, he mentions his grace in connection to justification in Romans 3:24 and Titus 3:7. He mentions the blood of Christ in Romans 5:9, and he mentions forgiveness in Romans 4:6 through 9. But what are the things that God says that are according to our own free will? to participate in his justification of us. Well, he mentions our words, Matthew 12, 37. He mentions humbling ourselves and our repentance that's connected to humbling ourselves in Luke 18, 14. Faith is something that is of our own volition, Romans 3, 28 and Galatians 2, 16 and 3, 8. And works of obedience, believe it or not, James 2, 21 through 25, God says himself is part of what he uses and has chosen to use to justify us and prepare us for eternity. And then finally, what does God say he uses to forgive us? On his end, of course, we have the blood of Christ, Matthew 26, 28, Hebrews 9, 22. And what God says that he uses of our free choice that participates in his willingness to forgive us is if we forgive others, Luke 6.37, Matthew 6.14. Also, repentance, Acts 8.22. And prayer, James 5.15 and Acts 8.22. Confessing of our sins is part of our forgiveness, 1 John 1.9. Another thing that we choose is turning from darkness to light, Acts 26.18. And when we do so, God forgives us. Repentance and baptism, Acts 2.38, is one thing that we do, that we do with our free will to be forgiven by God. And faith in Jesus is also a choice that we make, Acts 10.43. So 
I went through all that just to, again, make this important point that if anyone says that we are saved by one thing alone, there are actually many, many components that God uses to prepare us for eternity. Again, many of them are solely the working of God and other factors he has decided up to the free will of the individual. So once we are saved, we've participated in everything that we just read. Then from then on out, we battle the enemy of our souls until death. But we do so with the armor and the strength that God supplies. I love the imagery of this next C.S. Lewis quote. He says, no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready. The towels are put out and the clean clothes. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give up. Lewis further notes, when we are summoned by the angels into heaven, such will be an honor and a glory far beyond our merits. Eternity will be like a holiday, and the present life we are in will feel like a mere dream is ended. This is the morning of our eternity. It's only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all of their adventures will only be the beginning of the real story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before, unquote. Jesus said he is going to prepare a place for us in John fourteen three. Blessed and fortunate creatures, says C.S. Lewis, your eyes shall behold him and not another. All that you are, sins apart, is destined, if you will let God have his good way, to utter satisfaction. God will look to every soul like it's his first love because he is its first love. Revelation 2.4. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it, stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. Unquote. Relief is coming for those who are in Christ, including the concern for the well-being of the souls we love. In just a little while, you will be seeing him face to face, his glorious smile upon you, wiping your tears away. With great anticipation, let's look forward to one day hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant. There's so much more to say on this topic, isn't there? So I invite you, I have some more thoughts that I've collected in some free lessons that you can find at nomadsuni.com under free downloads. There's a series called 12 Foundations, and one of the lessons is all on eternity. In fact, if you liked some of the quotes here, many of those are included in that lesson, those C.S. Lewis quotes. So again, thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to sharing some more thoughts with you as we walk through through the scriptures and what God says on different topics. We'll see you next time and God bless.